episode number 13, One Golden Woman Podcast, Justice De Los Santos, as always, and unfortunately, it's only going to be me today in the studio, well, not even in the Daily Cal studio right now, Daily Cal Multimedia Office, I'm currently uh, back home in my house in the great little town of Hercules, California, shout out to the 510, but yeah, unfortunately, it's going to be me today, no Rory O'Toole, no Serena Carana, aka the Spice Queen. You know, they got, we're going we're gonna to have them sit out this one with what I like to call load management to quote uh, one Mr. LeBron James. You know, they got midterms, they got papers. I actually just finished up a round of, well, not necessarily a round. I had a midterm last week and then the week before that, and then I had a paper. So I'm kind of chilling right now. I got another midterm in about two weeks or so. So until then, it's smooth sailing, but you know, I don't want to put too much pressure on them. You know, when it comes to this podcast, this is sort of my lifeblood, and I'm a little crazy when it comes to making sure that we get our episodes every Monday. So I'm more than willing to record on a it's it's a, it's a seven o'clock on a Sunday night, and the reason I'm recording so late is because the uh, Cal Arizona State game began at three, and I didn't think I was actually gonna be recording home today. I thought I was gonna be recording somewhere in Berkeley, but. Due to some, you know, scheduling, uh, some little late communication, so to say, I had to end up going, driving from Hercules to Berkeley and back, which is about, I would say, a little less than an hour of driving to sort of pick up this microphone, come back here and establish myself. So, 7 o'clock on a Sunday, not quite delusional hours as me and Roy like to say, but almost there, you know, we're going to have enough brain cells to keep it rocking. So, to sort of jump right into it, as I like to begin every podcast, we're going to start with a little recap of where this team stands. And I would say a good, you know, I'm going to have to shamelessly plug this, but earlier in the week, I wrote an article that was titled, Can Cal Men's Basketball Go Winless in Conference? And I sort of, I put off actually putting pen to paper and writing that article. You know, me and Rory and Serena, we've talked about this concept a lot. But when it comes to actually writing about it, I feel like that was the point in which this is a legitimate possible, well, not necessarily a legitimate possibility, but this is the point in which this whole conversation around whether this can actually happen begins to get serious because we're at the home stretch now. And me having to write an article of that nature should tell you a lot about just where this team stands. And as I'm recording it, I have not jinxed myself, so to speak. Uh, Cal went to Arizona this past week for games against Arizona and Arizona State. Those both ended up in losses. Cal currently stands at 5-22 on the season. They are currently 0-15 in conference play. And that historically bad losing streak has now extended to 16 games. So, to begin with the Arizona, the Arizona game, actually. So, heading into this game, this was a rather... It was interesting for the fact that I believe that no two Pac-12 teams in the history of the Pac-12 had ever come into a single game with more combined losses in a winning or in a losing streak than Cal and Arizona. What I mean by that is Cal came into this game with a 14-game losing streak. Arizona came into this game with a seven-game losing streak. So I I believe. A friend of the program, former sports editor Josh Ewan, alerted me of this fact that this might have potentially been a, a a historic game 
And as we've known with the Pac-12 this season, not things aren't really historic for the right type of reason. So both of these teams entered this game having lost a combined 21 games. And this was sort of one of those games where I was thinking that if everything, and I mean everything, was to sort of just hedge Cal's way, maybe, just maybe, they could have walked out of the McHale Center with the win. Uh, unfortunately, that was, well, unfortunately from the Cal fan perspective, that wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, in fact, it sort of was the exact opposite of that. Instead of this being a close game where Cal, you know, sort of comes into the McHale Center, tries to bat a little bit, uh, it ended up being a 76-51 loss for Cal's worst loss of this season by margin of defeat. Uh, Justice Suing was the only real bright spot in this game. 18 points, 6 rebounds, 2 steals, a block. Uh, Paris Austin also had 12 points, 3 rebounds, 2 assists, 2 steals. But other than that, nothing to really uh, write home about. Matt Bradley, 7 points off the bench, 6 rebounds. Uh, not the greatest game in the world for Darius McNeil. 5 points on 2 of 9 shooting. Uh, Juwan Harris-Dyson, 3 points, 4 rebounds on 1 of 3 shooting. Connor Vanover. Six points on two of eight shooting on the Arizona side. Uh, Ryan Luther, 19 points, five rebounds, two assists. Chase Jeter, 13 points and seven rebounds. Devonair Dutrieve with 11 points, six rebounds, three assists and two steals off the bench. Alex Brasello, 14 points, two assists or two rebounds and an assist off the bench. And this was one of those games where... In in a sense, if you're if you're watching it from the Cal point of things, it was just a, a game that was kind of hard to watch, and you know that we've seen a lot of instances this season of Cal just not being the more talented team, or they just don't have the talent to match up like mono a mono, and this was sort definitely one of those games. I actually wasn't able to watch this game live, so I had to go back and watch it uh, recorded on the DVR and. I remember when I saw the halftime score, I was thinking 30-20, and I had sort of two thoughts at the same time. One was that, oh, it's only a 10-point game, which, considering the circumstances and how talented this Arizona team was, they're kind of lucky to be in that position. But then there was also the fact that they had only scored 20 points and a half, and, you know, regardless of it being close, that 10-point deficit, or rather the 20 points that they had scored in that first half told me a lot about how the rest of the second half would go. And then Arizona goes on to score 46 in the second half. Cal does score 31, but it's sort of a lost cause at that point, especially when you're getting in enemy territory. And so that gave Cal loss number 21 on the season. The game that just happened today, on a side tangent, I really... I'm really not a fan of these really weird Sunday games. I can understand like a very, like an early afternoon Sunday game. If it didn't happen on Super Bowl Sunday, the Cal-Stanford game that happened at one o'clock, I wouldn't be as opposed to games sort of being earlier in the day on a Sunday. Preferably, I would rather every team play on Saturday and just have it be a complete conference Saturday and forget the Sunday so I could see that under those circumstances but 3 p.m. on a Sunday it in a way it kind of felt like the Pac-12 didn't want it or wanted as few people as possible to watch this game just because of the scheduling you know it's the the day of the Lord you know, so to speak but 
you know, day of relaxation. And I don't think that many people, regardless of how really faithful they were to either Cal or Arizona State or the Pac-12, really tuning in at 3 p.m. on a Sunday. You know, that's prime barbecue hours. That's prime relaxation hours. But in a weird way, this ended up being a relatively close game in a way that I didn't personally imagine it to be. I was thinking that Arizona State, especially down low, is a super athletic team. They're going to out-rebound the hell out of Cal. They're going to just run them off the floor. But that's not what happened by any stretch of the imagination. Now, in terms of this particular matchup, going back to that article I had written, Can Cal Actually Go Winless in Conference? When I was thinking of the games that, the five remaining games that Cal had when I wrote that article, I sort of power ranked the likelihood of them winning a particular game. So in in the order of least confidence to most confident of them being able to win five of those games. Now, granted, the Arizona and Arizona State games have already happened, but I sort of went Washington, Arizona State, Arizona, Stanford, and Washington State in that order being Washington's the least confident and Washington State being the quote-unquote most confident in Cal's ability to win that game so that Arizona State game this was I was expecting this to be you know this was Arizona State's senior night they're going to come out with a lot of energy come out with a lot of juice the seniors are going to want to put up just one more great performance in the home crowd and the Sun Devils make relatively easy work of the Bears but that's not what happened by any stretch of the imagination and what first caught my eye was there was a change in the starting lineup you had the usual suspects, Paris Austin, Juwan Harris-Dyson, Justice suing Connor Vanover. But instead of Darius McNeil playing the two-guard, once again, Viking Jones subbed in Matt Bradley. And Matt Bradley proceeded to have, at least up to this point in his Cal career, the game of his life. 23 points, 10 rebounds, a single assist, 5 of 7 from deep. There was actually a point in this game late in the second half, and it was when... Arizona State had finally sort of made their run and they'd really gotten a stat. They gotten some distance between them and Cal, but Matt Bradley, I think on back to back possessions, hit some pretty, like, pretty confident three pointers. And I'm thinking, they're like, whoa, like, what? Like, I knew this was a confident kid. Like, we've seen him be confident in situations of this nature earlier in the season, but. To just straight up say, I'm taking this three-pointer, this is my shot right here, and then to knock it down, that's impressive. And I'm going to get into Matt Bradley a little more specifically once I finish up this little recap of Cal. But this was Justice Sewing's first game in which he didn't knock, or rather hit, the double figures since the game against Arizona. Sewing only had nine points on 311 shooting, a lot of four shots, a lot of uh, ugly shots, but he did have, I guess, for, uh, three rebounds and four assists, you know, just st uh, stuffing the statute a little bit. Three steals as well on the day. Uh, on the day. Uh, Paris Austin, 10 points, two rebounds, and three assists. Uh, Grant Antisovic off the bench, he hit, he had six points, seven rebounds, and three assists. It was a really impressive game for him off the bench. And as uh, I forgot which one of the commentators was making a note of it during the game, it seemed that whichever game he was commentating in regards to Cal that Antisevich always seemed to have a positive impact. And early in the um, first half, I believe, he hit three-pointers on back-to-back -back possessions. So Antisevich was really big for Cal in this game. 
Um, I'm looking at the stat sheet, and apparently Jacoby Gordon. This is this is a side tangent, but apparently Jacoby Gordon played four minutes, and that's that's a little strange. I don't remember at any particular point seeing him on the floor. It might it may have come in those you know last couple of minutes, but he had a that's really strange. He had a plus eight in the box score. I, I, I'm gonna go have to check this box score the next game because that's that's incredibly strange. I was actually making a mental note while the game was happening, and I was thinking I don't remember seeing Jacoby Gordon on the floor, but this this may have been towards the end of the first half. But I think that's all in regards to well, Darius McNeil. I think it's worth noting because me and Rory have had our discussions about whether he should come off the bench. And in this one, three points, one of five from the field, one of four from beyond the arc. I did want to note that there was a particular possession. I don't remember if it was in the first half or in the second half, but I know that Rory has kind of gotten on Darius for not, you know, we talked about him being aggressive, but in the way in which he was aggressive, so to speak. And when he's aggressive, it's more... You know, he's taking very confident shots from beyond the arc rather than him driving into the lane. But there was a possession during this game when he did drive into the lane. And I think he was, he might have been searching for some contact and didn't get it. I personally thought that he was fouled on the play. And this would be a moment where it would be perfect for me to just have that film uh, at my fingertips. But unfortunately, I do not. But I do remember this play just because it was... It was a little shocking in a way to just see him. And it was it was on a half-court set, too. That's what's worth noting because we have seen Darius be aggressive when it comes to going to the rim. But typically, we'll see that happen on a fast break. Even if there's like a man next to him, he's very aggressive in running towards the rim, going up for the layup in transition. But this was in a half-court set. So, Rory, if you're out there listening and, you know, I hope the the five loyal listeners that will make note of this. Uh, I guess that was a, a positive to see, even in a rather dark game, that he was being aggressive. There was a moment in this game that I do think is worth talking about just a little more in depth than just a a typical play, and this would be a this would be a perfect opportunity to bounce off Rory and Serena because I would have loved to hear uh, what they would have had to say about this play. But I believe with six minutes remaining in the second half, there was a possession where Paris Austin was bringing the ball up the floor. And all game long, Lugans Dort had sort of been an irritant to whoever was bringing the ball up the floor. He would guard them the length of the court and if they were to make it past half court it would have to be before Dort just being this irritant and just making sure that the ball handler had absolutely no dribble space and as we know most of the time it's Austin bringing that ball up the floor and occasionally there's also Matt Bradley who will bring the ball up the floor this is in regards to not sort of off of a made off of a rebound but off of a an opponent's made shot and there was a particular possession where Austin was about to cross the half-court line, or I believe he already did, and right as he crossed the half-court line, he gave Dort, I don't want to call it a little shove, because that would imply that 
this wasn't noticeable, but he, I'm not entirely, okay, this is my thing. I don't, I'm not sure if I can hit intent because it's very hard to gauge intent unless it's very obvious. So I cannot tell whether Austin did this on purpose or if he was just trying to get Dort off of him, but he kind of lowers his shoulder a little bit and gives Dort a little bit of a shrug, a little bit of a push, and it knocks Dort to the floor. There's no call on the play. Dort's down. I think Cal gets a made three out of that possession, and then there's immediately a timeout to address the fact that you have this 6-4 tank of a player on the floor. And this was one of those instances where instant replay didn't really help Paris Austin's case. You can definitely see it a little bit more in slow motion that it felt a little more sort of like a blatant attempt for Austin to sort of gain that separation, but it was it felt a little more aggressive just watching it in slow motion as opposed to live time. There were no fouls assessed after the fact. Paris Austin was not given a flagrant, but it was kind of an odd situation in a way I it's in some aspects it felt as if there was this frustration that was coming to a bubble and you know it is worth noting that in Dort picking up his man essentially had this one man press and that can be a little bit of an irritant so I believe that in a way that sort of just bubbled to the surface in Paris was it was a combination of both being a little irritated and trying to get him off of him. But just from the it wasn't the greatest look in the world in uh, for Paris in regards to that moment. Uh, to sort of get into the bigger the, the big picture stuff that I want to talk about, and I think this Matt Bradley uh, might be the only real big picture thing that I talk about just also considering that it's only me and you know I don't really have anyone to bounce these ideas off of but this was just a, to to zero in on this Arizona State game this was just one hell of an impressive outing by Bradley and it's sort of a continuation of things that we have seen for the entirety of this year now, just to as a bit of a refresher, he did uh, today 23 points and 10 rebounds. And I feel as if in a performance like this, as I was watching him, especially when he was hitting some pretty difficult shots, the one question that kept coming into my mind was, what exactly is Matt Bradley's ceiling as a player? And I was even, I had a thought that, you know, we you can't really make Matt Bradley the full-time point guard right now because for the obvious that in that you have Paris Austin. And I don't know if at any point I would ha want to have him be the full-time point guard, but as we've so as I've seen in this game in particular, he wasn't really playing the role of playmaker but he was playing more, more the role of scorer, but we have seen in the past his ability to playmake, particularly the one the game that comes to my mind is that UCLA game when he had to be the point guard because Paris Austin was not there. But you sort of see the combination of him being able to hit these three-pointers, 
the combination of that in addition to his playmaking, and now you have a very like a much more aggressive uh, rebounder, and you start to think what could potentially be his ceiling as a player at Cal. Now, to take a little bit of a step back and you know pour some of the <laughs> pour a dose of reality on the, on the subject, so to speak. Me and Rory have been a critical of sort of what we kind of see as a lack of of player development when we look at some of the sophomores, particularly uh, Jawan Harris Dyson. You know, we've we've talked about that subject ad nauseum, but it does bring up upon the question of some of these guys. And you know, when I was reflecting on this season when I was coming into the season, my prediction that the team would win 10, 11, 12 games, that was sort of predicated on the idea that Justice and Darius and Jawan and to a lesser extent Grant, they would take some sort of a leap between year one and year two. And, you know, Justice is just coming off of this rather great stretch of basketball, but in some ways... Darius is kind of the same player that he was year one to year two. Jawan has taken a major step back. Grant has definitely taken a step forward, but, you know, it's not, you can, it's kind of hard to gauge Grant as a player just because he's getting this very noticeable uptick in playing time. And so it's hard to determine whether he actually took the leap as a player or if this was just sort of the player that he was and he's now being unleashed. So in regards to, to circle this around back, to Matt, I say that he has laid down a very solid foundation in terms of the player that he can be, you know, someone that can shoot with confidence. And a lot of these, it's also worth noting that a lot of the three-pointers that he's taking aren't really of the catch-and-shoot variety. These are three-pointers that he's taking off the dribble and sort of sort of the same ones that we saw Darius McNeil take a lot last year and to an extent this year. But He's also pulling up just as he brings the ball up the court. He'll pull up in someone's face. And if we bring it back a little more, if we, if we go back to the San Diego State game, that I don't even think he had played 10 career games yet. And here you have this freshman hitting the game-winning three-pointer to win against a very tough San Diego State team. And then flash it back to just last week, you have him hitting, I believe, what was the game-tying three-pointer against UCLA. And you even, in the post-game press conference, when you had Justice at the podium, you had him, Justice sort of their, their veteran, so to speak. You talk about how how they're cognizant of him as just that fearless type of player who's willing to take that shot as a freshman. And you don't see that many freshmen who are so willing to just be that assertive character in situations like that. And we've also seen... Another example that kind of sticks out in my mind in particular was the St. Mary's game on the road when they were in Moraga. And that was a game in which the offense had kind of stalled. And what I saw during that game was Bradley be especially assertive. He saw that the offense was stalling and it was sort of this aggressive mentality that flipped that kind of switched to where he's thinking, okay, nothing's really going our way right now. I'm going to have to be the one to create. And so what I'm what I sort of have right now is this counterbalance between he's set himself up with a really great foundation in terms of the player that he could progress into. You know, when we if we're trying to map out his potential, 
going forward. We can envision him as someone... I think if he's shooting at a higher volume of three-pointers, I don't think he's going to be shooting at the clip that he is right now, which I believe is probably 46-47%. But, you know, sometimes you got to sacrifice efficiency to just to, to up the volume a little bit. So if we're envisioning him as a four-year college player here at Cal, I don't think it would be that off-base to imagine a scenario in which he's shooting about 40% from three, and, you know, is something of the caliber of, you know, 15, 5, and 5, maybe even more scoring if he takes the, those leaps from year 1 to 2, 2 to 3, and 3 to 4. And it's just, you know, there haven't been too many silver linings through this entire season. But to see someone like him who has progressively gotten better in various ways as the season goes along is definitely encouraging. Now, there are some areas of of opt or not necessarily optimism but some areas of caution i would say one of the primary areas of caution that i have right now is sort of the lack of a real a game from within with inside the arc he's not a very proficient scorer when it comes to scoring inside the arc i think he's hovering around 40 percent. although i did note that he had a, a nice little floater in this game as well but that's going to be an area where he has to continue to get better. One of my criticisms of Bradley, if we go back to a previous podcast, was in a way it still feels as if you'll, you'll see it from time to time in that he's still trying to play bully ball in a way. And, you know, we have discussed Matt Bradley being sort of a bulldog, you know, a bulldozer, not really afraid to go into the paint, not really afraid of contact. But... Playing like that only works to a certain extent. That's only going to work if you can pick on smaller guards. But when you got to go against the Xylan Cheatums and the Chase Jeters of the world, that's not going to essentially be the, the greatest strategy in the world for getting to the paint. I think he's also going to need to have to refine his handle a little more than he already has. And, you know, general playmaking, stuff of that nature. But the foundation for him to be a great player potentially even an all-conference player if we want to have that conversation in a way I think the foundation is definitely there now I guess to loop around a little more to to provide a counter argument to the counter argument you can look at a situation where someone like Justice has while he has improved marginally from year one to year two he hasn't really taken the leap that many thought he had the potential to take that's not to say that he's regressed but it is to say that you know, personally, I envisioned, especially with Don Coleman no longer being that primary option on offense, I was imagining a season in regards to this year where Justice went from averaging about 13 a game to, you know, averaging about 17, 16 a game with far more efficiency. And it just has, like, we've seen that player, especially as of late. I believe between the Washington game and this game, I don't have the exact stat with me, but he was averaging about 17 a game during this streak in which he had scored double figures. And this is more in line with the player that I thought he was going to be. But, you know, you do have to include the entirety of the season leading up to this moment. So that's sort of, I guess, my two cents in a way on Bradley. I really like the player that he's becoming. I like how he continues to progress throughout the season. I would like to see him take on that playmaking role a little bit but just by the virtue of having Paris Austin out there it's hard to 
give Matt Bradley the keys to the car. But I think having Bradley at point guard would open up some intriguing options just in terms of being able to spread the floor a little bit. A potential lineup that I thought in while watching this game, just envisioning Bradley as sort of taking on more of his playmaking role was was one of Bradley at the point guard, Suing at the three, McNeil at the two, and then Andre Kelly and Connor Vanover playing the four and the five, preferably Kelly at the four and Vanover at the five. I know that Rory's gonna hear this and it's gonna it's gonna warm his heart because we have been We've been sort of hoping for a combination of Kelly and Vanover uh, for quite some time, but I think that would open up. That would be very intriguing from from an offensive perspective, at least, because what you have there is, while they haven't necessarily proven it to the extent that I would I would want up to this point in the season, what I believe you have is five players who can shoot the three. And that really opens things up in terms of them being able to drive into the lane. You don't really have the paint as packed as it is. But I think that's a little, that, that might be a little wishful thinking considering Kelly has only taken a handful of actual shots outside of hook shots uh, for the season. But I think going forward, maybe into next year, if this entire core does manage to stay together, that's a lineup that I would be intrigued in seeing at some point. Or even just shifting ball handling, going 50-50 on ball handling responsibilities between, you know, Paris Austin and Matt Bradley. You know, we're just I'm just throwing stuff out there at this point, you know. It's been a long season, and I, I did mention in the article that I think at this point in the season, you do have to kind of just throw something new at the wall and hope that it sticks. Uh, before I head out, I actually want to, on the subject of Kelly, I do want to note something that I've seen in especially since he's struggled and it's essentially just been some tunnel vision in regards to being in the post now early on in the season kelly was uber efficient down low i think he was shooting somewhere around like 65 if not 70 like a true shooting percentage just down low like he was incredibly effective with that post hook because more often than not he was going against players who weren't as big as him but in now being confronted with, again, the Xylan Cheatham's, the Chase Jeters of the world, he sort of tried to stick to that same, you know, routine of moves that he tried, that he did utilize a lot during non-conference play, and it's simply not working. And in terms of player development, something that I would want to see from Kelly going forward is more of a willingness to not just rush his opportunities in the post, before going on a dribble, before like laying down that first dribble and when he has his back to a defender, examine the floor, see if there's any slashers, see if there's anybody cutting around the perimeter. And once you have that, once you see your options, then you start engaging in the dribble. But in addition to that, sort of just expand the horizons of the, the post moves that he does have right now. Because in to to sort of be brutally honest some of his his post moves up to this point in his career aren't that imaginative he doesn't really do any post fades he doesn't really do more than you know two dribble and then hook shot on his right hand which makes him incredibly easy to guard down low and we have seen it in uh, non-conference play that his touch is soft but he's going to have to expand his game 
in at least in regards to the post, he's going to have to work on the possessions that he does have when he's down low because as currently constructed, it's incredibly easy to guard him. It's His moves are essentially the same every time he gets an opportunity, and there are some opportunity or instances when he does try to force the issue, and it's a little it's a little hard to watch in a way because when he gets that ball down low you're sort of thinking in the back of your head oh he's just going to he's just going to go up and you know he might make it he might not but it's sort of like this this tunnel vision and that needs to expand in a sense and i think that if he's to go into this offseason knowing that's an that's an issue that he has to work on I feel like that's something that can easily be corrected. And in addition, you know, letting him shoot more mid-range, letting him shoot more three-pointers, subjects that we've talked about ad nauseum uh, on this podcast before, I would like to just see him at least take one jump shot or two jump shots a game, or not even just jump shots, just let him take one or two threes a game and run that that pick and pop. Because I feel like at this point, because he hasn't been taking that shot very seldom, if ever, I don't think teams are going to be able to game plan for that. And, you know, this isn't a make or break thing where if Kelly starts shooting three pointers, it's sort of going to completely catch the opposition off guard. But it, it, it has been a trick that they've yet to unleash. And, you know, like I said, I would at some point just before the season ends, allow him to shoot a couple mid range, allow him to shoot a couple jumpers and get acquainted just so he's not going into next season diving essentially headfirst into, you know, having to add a completely new arsenal to his game, give him some experience in regards to, you know, literally getting his feet under himself in regards to a jumper. We ha- we've we seen what happened in regards to Connor when, you know, those first couple of games when Connor came back from the concussion and the broken nose, the shot simply wasn't there to the extent that it was before the injury. But as the game sort of progressed and he took more shots and he got more comfortable with his shots that's when they started falling down and you know there's only three games left in the regular season if everything goes according to just general logic there will probably only be four more games in this season because they're more likely than not going to get eliminated in the first round of the Pac-12 conference uh, tournament but you know why not just get him acquainted for the future why not run a little bit of pick and pop and you know, as I've said this ad nauseum, let him play that point forward role. When he gets a rebound, let him go off to the races. I'm, I'm not going to wax poetic on the situation when Ward. That's sort of, we've talked about this a lot. I'm pretty sure Rory's going to be like, yeah, we've heard this a million times. Serena's going to be like, yeah, you said that a million times. But uh, we're at the 35-minute mark. You know, if Rory was here, we'd probably hit that full 40 and, you know, it wouldn't just be me talking for the entirety of the time. I feel like Serena would come in from the top rope with the spicy takes. But before I go, I do want to plug something that we are going to be releasing on next Wednesday. We are going to be having essentially our first guest who's not, so to say, another journalist. And I don't want to give anything away because I feel like that would spoil it. But let's just say this person was featured in the San Francisco Chronicle and it was, I I really don't know how to plug this in a way that's not completely giving it away. But if you went to the Cal UCLA game, you may have saw an individual, you may have seen this individual without even knowing it. 
and this individual brings a lot of experience in regards to Cal, a lot of fandom, and let's just say this individual will not be experienced games at Haas Pavilion next season. Yeah, so to say, so to say. But that, in retro, when I listen to this, it's probably going to be a horrible plug. I think I was trying to be a little too vague and, ambigu- and ambiguous, but I think it's just turning into something completely different where it's sounding like I'm speaking in these weird like tongue twisters. But with that being said, this has been episode number 13 of the One Golden Moment podcast, Just Adele Santos. In the next episode, Rory O'Toole and Serena Karana, In Here in Spirit, signing off.